Shalom, and thank you for listening to the weekly teaching from Nachamu Ami. It's our honor that you've chosen to participate virtually, and we hope that this lesson will be an inspiration in your daily walk. Don't miss a single teaching. Be sure to download the Nachamu Ami app by visiting our website at www.makeandmessianic.com and clicking the Download the App button in the top left corner. Enjoy the message. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, I wanted to, to give a thanks to Rabbi Damien for giving me this opportunity. Um, I know I've been in the, uh, the Messianic movement for a while, and it's not easy to uh, be comfortable enough with someone in order to share their beaming with you. Um, so it is a tremendous, tremendous honor that, that he would uh, even give me the opportunity to come speak to his flock, come speak to his people. Um, so it's, it's a great uh, blessing uh, for me to do that. Um, this week we're in, in Parsha to Miketz, uh in the Torah. And um, this is one of my favorite portions of all time. Uh, this one and, and basically the entire ending of the book of Brashit, which tells us about the life of Joseph. Um, in my understanding, there's no other biblical character that parallels the life of our Messiah Yeshua than that of Joseph, the son of Jacob. So uh, there's, there's tremendous things to be learned from this particular portion that we're in right now. Um, we're going to learn about what's known as Hashkacha in Hebrew. Hashkacha means the supervision of God. The fact that God's divine presence and divine uh, providence oversees and overlooks everything that we're doing. But also in this portion, we'll be able to, to draw out a principle to understand what is our responsibility. What are we supposed to do when it comes to the divine plan and, and, and the divine providence of, of God? Also, we're going to learn about how to... Uh, to uh, what we need to be doing uh, concerning our brethren. What do we need to be doing uh, that's going to bring about what's known as the Geula Sofit, which is the final redemption, right? Yeshua talks about this in Matthew chapter 24. We know that the Messiah came the first time. He who was the suffering servant of Yeshiyahu 53. And then we know when he comes back again, he'll be come back as the conquering king, as the Lion of Judah. And he's going to, to bring about the final redemption and basically return humanity back to God's original design, which was in the, uh, in the Garden of Eden. Okay, so we're going to, this, all this is wrapped up in this Torah portion this week. And, and I just wanted to start off and just ask the question, do you believe that God is good all the time? He's good all the time. He's always good. But sometimes in our life, we don't always see that. We don't always feel that God is good. Because uh, we live in a world that, that basically uh, hides conceals the presence of God. So sometimes we have a hard time in seeing that God is good, but through this particular portion, we're going to see the goodness of God, and we're going to see behind the scenes of how God is, is using uh, Joseph and, and using uh, his brothers and using all of these situations in order to bring about his, his will. And so when we say the words goodness of God, what do we mean by that? What do we mean, the goodness of God? Even when we get sick, even when we have difficult situations um, financially, 
uh, or, or we end up in a situation that hurts and it's painful and we can't see all of the things that God's doing in our lives, do we still say that it's the goodness of God? So we're going to dig into that today, all right? So anytime before you study Torah, it's, it's traditional to say a blessing, to say, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kishanu B'mitzvotah, V'tzivanu La'asoch B'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and commanded us to make your Torah our business. La'asoch means making the Torah your business. It should be your life when you wake up in the morning. It should be your life when you go to bed at night. And it should be your life and your business throughout the entire day. Okay? So I wanted to start out and kind of give you a setting uh, of the Torah portion this week. Where are we at in the narrative, right? What's going on with Joseph? Um, He's been sold by his brothers, his brothers have basically convinced Yaakov that he's dead. You know, they bring the katonat pasim, they bring the, the coat of many colors, they dipped it in the blood, and, and deceived Yaakov into believing that, that his son Yosef was dead. Okay, so he gets pulled up out of the pit, he, he gets sold uh, to some travelers, ends up in Egypt, uh, he goes into the house of Potiphar where he becomes the head servant. He's in charge of everything that's in his house, but he gets unfairly accused and gets put in prison. So while he's in prison, he, uh, he has a, a butler and a baker who have dreams, and he's able to interpret their dreams. So he interprets their dreams, and this is basically... Uh, Oh, and the end of, end of last week's Torah portion, it's the fact that the butler is restored back to his position uh, after he gets out of jail and, you know, the baker is hanged according to his dream. And this is where we pick up our Torah portion this week. It states that at the end of two years to the day that Pharaoh had his dreams. So the question that you would naturally ask of the text is two years from what to the day? Okay. Uh, one of my favorite uh, commentators on the Torah, his name is Orachayim. He, su- he suggests that it was a continuation of the dreams that the baker and the butler had while Joseph uh, was in prison and interpreted these dreams. So he's saying that this entire time uh, uh, that came about was a time uh, of continuation. If you notice, Joseph had two dreams. The baker and the butler had dreams, which makes two dreams. Pharaoh has two dreams. What's the point of being twos, right? Twos in these dreams uh, basically mean two things. Number one, it's a continuation. We can see that they're connected from the time that Joseph had his first dreams all the way to the dreams where he is uh, the second in all of command in Egypt. And also, it's a, uh, it's a, it means that these things are about to take place. Uh, he tells Pharaoh, he said, your dreams are two, but they're actually one. And the reason that God's telling these things to you is because it, God is in the process of making it happen. Okay, so it's two years to the day. Pharaoh has dreams about uh, fat cows, skinny cows, good grain, ugly grain, and, and all of these things that are going on. And the butler remembers. All of a sudden he remembers, oh, yeah. There's this guy that was down in, in the prison. He interpreted our dreams, and so he was absolutely correct. According to his interpretations, exactly what happened. I was restored. The other guy was hanged. 
And he said, basically, I'm pretty sure this is my commentary. He said, and I'm kind of glad it was that way. <laughs> right? So they had seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, and it was headed their way, and they had to do something about it. Okay? They needed to do something about it. And that was the reason that Hashem was giving Pharaoh the dreams, is to, to give him a little bit of, of, of forewarning and so that he may preserve a posterity uh, within Israel. So at this point, Joseph is appointed as the second in command of all of Egypt. And here's we pick up the text in chapter 42 and verse 1. I didn't get no clicker, so, so he's going to have to drive today. Okay, okay. All right, so, so Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. So Jacob said to his sons, why do you make yourselves conspicuous? Now, most of, the, most of your translations, uh, as I was studying this to, to prepare what I was uh, going to teach, most of the translation says, basically, why do you guys just stand around and look at each other, right? What, what was Jacob really actually asking him? Um, he says, why do you make, uh, the Rashi translation uh, says, why do you make yourselves conspicuous? According to Rashi's interpretation, and if you don't understand or know who Rashi is, Rashi was a 12th century sage. Um, he basically uh, exposited the literal meaning of the text. Rashi is, uh, he is the expert in, uh, in Judaism of, of interpreting the text according to its plain meaning, right? He doesn't have any hidden allegories or things like that. He, he alludes to the plain meaning of the text. So when, when he translates something as conspicuous, there's a kind of a reason why he does it. So, uh, so most of what the translation you're going to see up here is going to be according to Rashi's translation. So he asked him, so why are you making yourselves conspicuous? And essentially what he said was saying is why do you stand around in front of everybody, right? Why are you in the land of Canaan and you're standing in front of all these people while you still got this food? He said there's grain down in Egypt. You need to prepare for what's coming, right? We're in the middle of a famine and we're, having, we're going to have difficulties. And he's asking his sons, why are you just standing around? Why are you flashing your, your, you know, your... Uh, your healthy body, so to speak, in front of all the Canaanites when really what you should be doing is going down and getting more food because you know in the end where our food's going to run out. So essentially he was, he was chastising his children for, for doing what they were doing. So they, they weren't making provisions to procure food for themselves for, for when the food run did out. So he tells them to go down to Egypt to get food for all of them. Right In verse 3 it says... So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Benjamin did not go with them because Jacob was afraid that something might happen to Benjamin along the way. If you notice, the text doesn't say that Jacob's sons went down to, down to Egypt. It says Joseph's brothers went down to Egypt. Okay, that's, a, that's an interesting clue in the text to, to basically, and the commentators, most of them just agree that they understood if they were going to Egypt, that there's a very good possibility they're going to run into Joseph down there. They didn't know whether he was alive or whether he was dead. They, they weren't sure of that, that particular thing. So when the text says it was Joseph's brothers, that most of the commentators say, that's the reason the text says that is because they had their minds to, oh no, we're going to Egypt. Okay? So they end up, um, 
They end up going to Egypt. They come face to face with Joseph and they bow their faces to the ground before him. Joseph recognizes his brothers immediately, but he doesn't reveal himself right away to them. Okay? Why not? You would think that when, when Joseph's brothers, right, he spent all this time uh, in, in, the, uh, in Egypt and he's been basically alone. Uh, he's, he's been separated from his entire family for almost 20 years now. You would imagine that when his brothers come to the door, he'd go, what's going on, guys? How you doing, my brothers? I haven't seen you in a long time. What's happening, you know? Maybe he would be excited. He doesn't. What does he do? He just sits there for a minute. He starts thinking through the situation, okay? This is important. This is important. And by the way, this should be a clue as to how to answer the question, why didn't, why didn't Yeshua just come right out and tell everybody who he was, right? We see in the Gospels many a times he'll do a miracle and he'll tell people, shh, don't tell anybody. Why didn't he just come right out and say, hey, this is me, this is the guy, okay? Joseph's going to answer that for us. He's going to answer that for us. So in uh, verse 7, Joseph recognizes brothers, but he just didn't flat out say, hey, brothers, it's me, guys. <laughs> what up, y'all? He didn't say that. The text states that Joseph acted like a stranger toward them. He acted like a stranger toward them. And he spoke harshly with them. So looking at this, one of the reasons that the rabbis say, that Chazal says that he spoke harshly with them and he acted as a stranger to them, is so that they wouldn't recognize him. This is instructive, right? What is the number one complaint over the last 2,000 years as to why the Jewish people will not believe that Yeshua is the Messiah? Holocaust, the pogroms, the crusades, the inquisitions. Now, I'm not saying that it's Yeshua that spoke harshly to them, but those who said that they were followers of Yeshua that did these things, okay? So whenever an emissary comes in the name of someone else, it's as if the one who's speaking uh, is, is, is the one who sent them. An emissary is literally carrying the authority of the one that is sent, uh, the one that sent them. So what happened is, over the last 2,000 years, the Jewish people have not understood that Yeshua is the Messiah because of the fact that they've been spoken harshly to and that their own brother appears to be a stranger to them. They can't see him. They can't see him. And, and, and it's been said that the Jewish people have a very long memory, very long memory. Right to convince a Jewish person that Yeshua is in fact the Messiah is is a very daunting task because, and dare I say it, because of of followers of the Messiah. This has been one of the big issues. So what's got to happen, and we'll see it later on. What's got to happen is something very important's got to take place. Okay, so this is a prophetic look. Literally, in the, in the story of Joseph, this is a prophetic look into the future about what's going to happen to our Messiah, how he's going to end up being treated. He's in the nations. He's looking and acting like someone who is completely foreign to them. He doesn't look or act like his brothers at this particular point. You ask the Jewish people today, who is Yeshua? He's that Gentile God. 
He's the God out there in the nations. That's who he is. He's not our Messiah. He's that Gentile God. Okay? And, and, and he's basically done away with the Torah. He's persecuted the Jewish people for 2,000 years. So at this particular point, based on the situation, the brothers do not recognize him. He speaks harshly. His name has been changed. He's wearing different clothes. At this point, the rabbis even said it's been 20 years since he's seen his brothers. At the time he was with his brothers, he didn't have a beard, but now he does. Okay? So his entire appearance has completely been changed. But Joseph recognized his brothers. Okay? So all of this is a picture of what's known in Hebrew as the galut. It's the exile. What's going to happen in the future in the exile of the people? Uh, we're literally in the last exile. There, there was prophesied four, four exiles, and then the, the fifth exile is the exile of Edom. We're in exile of Edom right now. And this is really what it's, it's picturing. It's the glute within the nations, the exile within the nations. The Messiah has been sent out, and then the nation of Israel has been dispersed. So interestingly, the Ramban makes this statement. When I, I read this, I about fell out of my chair. He said, furthermore, he recognized them because he knew that they would come to Egypt for food. But they did not recognize him, meaning his brothers didn't recognize Joseph, because it did not enter their minds that the slave they had sold to the Ishmaelites so many years ago was now the ruler of the land. They didn't see it. They didn't understand that, hey, what happened to Yeshua? Yeshua was come, he dealt with his brothers, his brothers rejected him, literally put him in a pit, he came out of the pit, then he went out to the nations, and then Israel was dispersed into the nations. The brothers put him in a pit, took him out of the pit, sold him out, and then they ended up going to the nations, and who did they not expect to be second in command? His brother, their brother uh, Joseph. <clears throat> so what we're seeing today is that the Jewish people have come out into the nations and who appears to be the greatest persecutor of them? Yeshua. That's, that's who appears to be the greatest uh, persecutor to the Jewish people. So it was just interesting. He said it didn't even enter their minds that their brother that they had sold is the one. Didn't even enter their minds. All right, chapter 42 and verse 9. It says, Joseph recalled the dreams that he dreamed about them and said to them, you are spies. To see the land's nakedness, you have come. So at this point, Joseph recognized something, okay? The commentators here, uh, they, they, they have an argument, which is not uncommon between the commentators and the rabbis, between Rashi and the Ramban. Rashi says at this particular point, he saw that the, the dreams that he had about his brothers bowing down to them had been fulfilled. But the Ramban comes along and he says, whoa, 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 hang on just a minute. That's not necessarily true. Because in his dream, all 11 brothers are bowing to him. Who's missing? Benjamin's missing. Benjamin's not there. So what did Joseph do? He saw a deficiency in this scenario. He remembered his dreams. That's why text tells us. He remembered his dream. And as he's standing there, his brothers are bowing down to them. And he's going, something's not right with this picture. Something's not right. So what does he do? He accuses them of being spies. Come 
and 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 uh, and and spy out the the nakedness of the land. Why does he does Why does he do this? It seems odd that he would just come up with this on the spot and start accusing them of things. Why? Joseph didn't know whether Benjamin was still alive or not. He had no idea. He didn't know what's been going on for the last 20 years. And, and, they, and he didn't know if the brothers had done the same thing to Benjamin as they had done to Joseph. Had Joseph thought that the dreams had been fulfilled at this point, he would have been mistaken. Okay? Being that Joseph was a wise man, he had some further investigation to do. Okay? How many of us would have jumped on, on, on the boat and would have said, oh, hey, well, everything's good, you know? And instead of thinking wisely, he took back for a minute. He, he stepped back for a minute. He said, this is instructive for us in that it is wise to dig further into a situation that, that we will have a clear picture instead of jumping to any conclusions or assuming anything, especially when it comes to discerning the plan of Hashem. Instead, uh, when it comes to discerning the plan of God, we have to be wise in what we do. And we have to see God working in a situation um, and, and in order to be able to help fulfill that plan. And I'll get to that in just a second. But there is a right time to move and act, and there are times to sit still and allow things to develop to a fuller extent. So Joseph recalls his dreams, right? He recognizes there's a deficiency that Benjamin wasn't with them. And he devises a plan to get Benjamin to come down to Egypt in order to fulfill the plan. Next slide. Do you believe... Oh, no, I'm sorry. Is this a, did I put up there, do you believe... God wants to use you? Okay. Um, do you believe that God wants to use you in this world in order to accomplish his purposes? Do you believe that he, he, he has a plan for you to work within his purposes in order to carry out the things God is carrying out in this world? Or do you think that God is the one who is doing everything? And we just sit back in the couch watching American Idol waiting to get zapped out of our Nikes into a seven-year party in heaven. <laughs> right? There's a lot of people who say, I'm saved. Now it's all over with. God's going to do everything else. God's going to cause everything to come about, and there's really nothing else for me to do. My only job was to get saved. Well, I don't think so. If you see a part of the world that's unrectified, a part of the world that's been left in a deficient state, then it is up to you to make the tikkun. It's up to you to make the rectification. Hashem has left this particular, this particular part of the world undone, and he's given you the ability to see that thing being undone, means that God's given you the opportunity to make the tikkun. He's given you the opportunity to fix the situation. Okay? We, especially in congregations, and, and I'm not talking about this congregation, okay? It's, it's another congregation um, in China I'm talking about, okay? Okay? We've gotten this idea. We've gotten this idea that it's up to someone else. 
It's up to the pastor. It's up to the rabbi. It's up to the elder, elders. It's up to the shamashim, the, the deacons, that they're the ones who are supposed to be doing everything. And yet, when we see a situation in, in, in either our communities or maybe in a place that we work, and we see something that is not in the state in which God intended it, and God's given you the opportunity to see that, then it is our job to step into that, and then from that point, we become what's known as partners with Hashem. Okay, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, I want to say. He talks about being a partner with God in creation. Okay, so this is what Joseph does. He sees that Benjamin is not with them, so he devises a plan to get Benjamin down to Egypt so that the dreams would be fulfilled, so Joseph accuses them of being spies. He accuses them of being spies, but his brother said, not, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. We are truthful. Your servants have never been spies. Okay, again, Rashi commenting on verse 11 says regarding the statement, we are all sons of one man. Rashi comments on it and says this, Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit flickered in them, and they included Joseph with them, for he too was the son of their father. (laughs) This is significant. This is so significant. Rashi, 12th century. 12th century uh, French, uh, French rabbi. He says that the Holy Spirit flickered within those brothers and they included Joseph, not really knowing exactly who he was, but they said, we're all sons of one father. He included them. I'm going to let you on a little secret. The Jewish people are beginning to recognize that Yeshua is one of their own. They're recognizing. Now, I'm not saying they're recognizing that he is, in fact, the Messiah. But today, in Orthodox synagogues, in the Haredi neighborhoods in Jerusalem, people are openly talking about Yeshua. This was something that wasn't going on 20, 30 years ago. You would mention the the name Yeshua in a Haredi or in an Orthodox neighborhood in Jerusalem, you get into a fight. Nobody would talk to you about it. But today... The conversations are being had, not that he's the Messiah, but they're recognizing that he is, in fact, Jewish, where in the last 2,000 years, what has he been, right? He's been the long, flowy-haired guy, you know? They recognize him as one of their brothers. So that was absolutely amazing by Rashi. For him to, to say that, it's, it's, it's one of their brothers, okay? This is the beginning of the Geula Sofit, this is the, the beginning of the final redemption because we'll see the next portion ends up with Joseph revealing himself to his brothers. So the beginning of the, the Geula, the beginning of the redemption, is the fact that they begin to recognize Joseph uh, as their brother. Okay? So Paul talks about this in Romans eleven fifteen. He, he explains this in Romans 15. He says uh, that when the Jewish people recognize their Messiah, it will bring about the resurrection from the dead, uh, essentially is, is how Paul puts it. So Joseph creates this situation where the brothers just reveal all kinds of information to him, right? He starts questioning them. He stands off. He, he talks harshly to them and, and becomes as a stranger. And what do they do? Oh, they start talking. They start talking. 
In the midst of, of, of this, he creates a plan to verify if Benjamin's still alive to test his brothers. Okay? Uh, I don't think I put it up there, but verse 24, Joseph imprisons Simeon to ensure that they return back to Egypt with Benjamin. Okay? They, they, he, he, Joseph basically says, all right, I've got 10 brothers here. Who can I pick? Did he go eeny, meeny, miny, mo? How did he do it? Why Simeon? Why Simeon? There's another one I didn't put in there. His name is Shimon. What's inherent in the word Shimon? Okay, okay, all right. In, 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 embedded in the word, and it's the root of the name Shimon, is the word Shema, okay? What did Joseph take away from his brothers? Hearing. He took away their hearing. What's happened in, 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 in with the Jewish people for the last 2,000 years? They can't hear. There's been a veil placed over their hearts. So Shimon was taken away. You just say, yeah, when things like this happen, you have to ask the question, why this guy? Why not that guy, right? Why not three of them? You know, it's prophetic. Joseph takes away their hearing. And why is this significant? I once went to a debate with, uh, you guys familiar with Dr. Michael Brown? I went to, de- yeah, I went to debate between him and an Orthodox rabbi in, in Atlanta at one of the college campuses. And their, their discussion that they were having back and forth uh, was basically Dr. Michael Brown expressing that Yeshua is in fact the Messiah. And the Orthodox rabbi, his whole argument, his whole argument was not about the historical Yeshua as found within the gospel narratives. You know what he said? The church. The church. The church. His entire argument was about the Crusades. His whole argument was about the law's been done away with. His whole argument is we stop being Jewish. His whole argument was against the church. His argument had nothing to do with Yeshua as the Messiah. Nothing at all. And, and, and that's what really surprised me, because if he would just understand, if you could just clear away all of the bad stuff that he's heard and all of the theological garbage that's been thrown at him for so long, if you could get, just get him to sit down and look at the historical narratives of who Yeshua is, he might have a different perspective. So their hearing has been taken away. Right? So Simeon's put in jail. Verses 25 and 26. Joseph commanded that they fill their vessels with grain and return their money, each one each one's money, to his sack and to give them provisions for the journey, and so he did for them. They lifted their purchase onto their donkeys and departed from there. This is where it gets extremely interesting. Okay, you guys ready to learn some Hebrew? This is the importance of learning the Hebrew behind the English. Okay, In verse 25, it states that Joseph returned their money, each one to his own sack. Okay? In Hebrew, this word is shin kof. It's the word sack. Literally is how you pronounce it in Hebrew, shin kof, sack. Okay? Pretty simple, right? Then if you go to verse 27, it uses 
two words for the word sack. The one opened his sack to give his give feed to his donkey at the inn, and he saw his money, and behold, it was in the mouth of his sack. Here the word in sack, uh, the word sack in Hebrew is used or in English is used twice, but you don't see it in the English is that there are two different words being used for sack in this particular verse. The first one is the word sack, just the shinkof. Um, and, and so so when he first opened his sack, it was just a sack. It was just a regular old everyday sack that he carried stuff in. But when he saw the money in the mouth of the sack, it is the word amtachet. Completely different word. Okay? Why the two different words here? In the same verse, talking about the same possession that the man had. The text is trying to tell us something here about what's going on between Joseph and his brothers. All right? The word amtachet in Hebrew appears in the Tanakh only 15 times. It's only used 15 times in all of the Tanakh, and it's only used in this Torah, uh, this Torah portion and the next Torah portion concerning Joseph and his brothers. That's it. One word, 15 times, and it's only used right here in all of the Hebrew Bible. So let's look at the word amtachet um, and see what's going on here. Okay, You divide the word into two, and you get two words. You get the word emet, and you get the word chat. The word emet means truth, and the word chat means fear. So, what's going on here? He takes the brother's money, he puts it back in the sack of, uh, the grain, uh, the sack of grain. They get down the road, they open it up, the money's back. Well, what's the truth here? The truth is that it's their brother who's blessing them. That's the truth. That's what's going on behind the scenes. They don't know it. They're scared to death. But that's where the chat comes in. So they're learning truth, but they're fearful because the, the truth has not been revealed. See, there's a, a, in, in the world that we live in, there's concealing and there's revealing. Okay, so, so in this word amtachet, you see that it's truth, and the word fear, concretely, in, in, the, in the dictionary, means crushed. So basically, they, they, they saw their money, the first thing they think in their mind, oh, we're in big trouble. This guy's going to accuse us of stealing. Not necessarily true. Joseph was just blessing his brothers. Now, he used this to his advantage, but he was blessing his brothers by putting the money back in their sack. Okay? So he returned their money in order that they would be blessed by it. But what is their reaction? Their reaction is fear. Because they have this preconceived notion of who it is that they're dealing with. You remember me talking about the debate with the Jewish Orthodox rabbi? It's because of the preconceived notion that he already has. He puts his hands up against it. He fights against it. He, he, he wants to argue against it because of what he perceives him to be. But all the time, behind the scenes, it's his own, their own brother that's blessing them. He's blessing his own brothers, and they can't see it because of a, a preconceived notion. Have you ever went into a situation where you feared the worst because someone had told you about that person that you were going to see 
and they told you that he was hateful and mean, and so that was the expectation you had when you went into meet with that person or talk with that person. Okay, that's why Lashon Hara is so damaging. That's why it's so damaging. It skews your perception about someone else. The rabbis say it goes as far as you've done killed their character. It kills three people, but that's not what we're talking about today. Another way that this word can be divided, and just so you know, this is actually an accepted uh, method of interpretation according to the rabbis. I'm not just slicing and dicing words just to make it look good. This is an accepted uh, means of interpretation by the rabbis. Another way this word can be divided is between the Aleph and the word Metachet, right? The, the letter Aleph is a representative of God. The, the gematria of, of Aleph is one. It's the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's one. So what is God? He's Echad. He's one. But also another uh, gematria of the, of the letter Aleph is 26. The letter Aleph itself can be made up of two different letters. You notice the little pieces on the sides represent a yod. They look like a yod. And the slash that goes through the middle can, can look like a represent a vav. A yod is 10. Yod is 10. Vav is 6. It's 26. Lance, what is 26? The tetragrammaton, right? So, so the, the Aleph is, is equal in numerical value to God's holy, ineffable name, okay? So God represents the Aleph. Then we have the word metachet. Is that me? Oh, okay. Maybe it's my beard. Okay. Uh, the word metachet. The word metachet means from underneath, right? We say metachet shulchan, underneath the table. So when we see that Joseph is dealing with his brothers, this word amtachet means God is the one who's underneath all of it. God is the one who's underneath all of it. I told you earlier that we, we live in a place that's concealed and revealed. Because of the world that we live in, without getting into too much detail about it, we're living in a lowered state, a lowered world, in which God is almost totally concealed from our eyes and from our understanding. This is the only way that we have the ability to have free will. Had God exposed or revealed himself any more within the world, we would no longer have a free will. Okay, so God, God has created this world in such that we see material things and, and everything spiritual is concealed by that which is material, okay? But it takes a real special eye to see Amtachet. It takes someone to search the scriptures. It takes one to, to study, to pray, and to do all kinds of things things that need to be done according to the scriptures in order to see the Aleph underneath everything. In order to see what, what I was talking about in the beginning about Hashkacha. Hashkacha Pratis. It is the divine providence of God working within the world. And this is what I believe that... Um, this is what I believe what uh, James, the book of James, is talking about in chapter 1. 
He said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally without reproach. And it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that land man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So he's talking about any trial and tribulation that you go through. Just go through it. Just, just go through it and, 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 and have the best possible attitude knowing that God is in fact in control. And he's the, he's the one underneath who's guiding these situations. Okay, so, so the testing of a person through trials and tribulations, it is the revealing of the Yetzirah within us. It's the revealing of the evil inclination. Okay, this is what Joseph is doing with his brothers. He's testing them to see where they're at in their life. Have they done to Benjamin what they did to me? Are they still the same guys that was 20 years ago? Okay, so he's putting his brothers through all of this to reveal something that's in them. The brothers get back to Jacob. They tell him all that has happened, right? They went down. They go back. They tell him everything that's happened. Jacob's not happy about it. It seems like there's more trouble, right? That's all that Jacob needs. <laughs> when Jacob comes before Pharaoh, and uh, I don't think it's next Torah portion. Maybe it is after that. Pharaoh asks him, says, how are you doing? He goes, my life is short and full of trouble. <laughs> it's, it's, it's short and full of trouble. So he goes back, they go back, they tell him that they found their money in their sacks, that they were terrified. They told him that Simeon was in jail and that the viceroy of Egypt now wanted Benjamin to come. And Jacob responds by saying, you have bereaved me. And, and in verse 36, he says, you have bereaved me. Joseph is gone, Simeon is gone, and now you would take away Benjamin? Upon me it has fallen. And in verse 37, Reuben told his father, saying, You may slay my two sons if I fail to bring him back to you, but put him in my care, and I will return him to you. The Radak, Rabbi David Kimke, commenting on this, commenting on this states that Reuben had said something foolish, in even suggesting that his father might kill his own grandsons. Seeing that Reuben's suggestion was so foolish, Jacob didn't even bother to formally reply to it. He didn't, it did not deserve to be dignified with a serious answer, right? So why did Radak say this? Why did he say that, that Reuben said something foolish? In reality, Reuben was not serious. He wasn't serious uh, about the situation. He knew that his father wouldn't do such a thing. Therefore, Reuben, did Reuben even offer anything at all? No one and his father wouldn't accept it. He didn't offer anything at all. It was as if he didn't say anything at all. It would have been better that he would remain quiet than to say what he had said. Okay? There are some people in this world who will tell you anything they think you want to hear with no real intentions of fulfilling it. So, so Reuben's offer was completely empty. So the food gets eaten up. Then Jacob tells him to go back. He buys him some more food. At this point, Judah steps up, reminds Jacob that the man said, unless they bring Benjamin back with them, they will not see his face no more. Jacob says, oy vey. Oh, that's my translation. Why did, why did you tell this man all of this stuff? 
right? Why did you say it? And Judas says, how was I supposed to know the guy was going to say, bring him here? How did I know he was going to do that? Then Judas said, send the lad with me and let us arise and go so we will live and not die, neither we nor our children. At this point, Judah is telling Jacob that if we don't take a chance by bringing Benjamin with us to going to get food, this one thing is sure, we're all going to die if, we don't, if you don't allow us to do this, if we don't go buy more food. So uh, chapter 43, verse 9, it says, I will guarantee him of my own hand you can demand him. If I do not bring him back to you and stand him before you, then I will have sinned before you for all time. So what's the difference between Judah and Reuben here? When talking about the guaranteeing the safety of Benjamin, right? Judah made a personal guarantee on his own life, on his own life concerning the safety of Benjamin. He didn't do. Uh, he didn't. He didn't offer up the life of someone else like Reuben did with his own children. The term in Hebrew is called mesirut nefesh. Mesirut nefesh. It is the giving up of one's own life in order to fulfill the guarantee for someone else. Okay. Jacob agrees to this proposal. Uh, he takes Judah at his word and says, "Okay, you're going to personally guarantee him. I'm going to send him with you." Jacob agrees. They end up going back to Egypt with Benjamin in tow. Joseph sees that Benjamin has indeed come back with him and instructs his personal steward to invite them to Joseph's house. Again, the brothers are afraid because they're thinking that they're, they're being charged with thievery now. Why else would you invite us to the viceroy's house of Egypt unless you knew that we had our money and that you were going to charge us with being thieves? So they already had their minds made up when they come in there. They already had their idea of what was going to take place before they even got into the situation. But what did the steward say to them? He said, Shalom Lechem. Today we say, Shalom Lechem. Peace unto you. Fear not. Your God and the God of your fathers has put in a hidden treasure into your sacks. Your payment had reached me, and he brought Simeon out to them. At this point, you have to wonder what the brothers were thinking. Right? The text doesn't tell us. The steward makes an absolute amazing confession to them. Yeah, I know. I had your money. Put it back in your bag. And don't worry, here's your brother. Interesting. So they go into, into Joseph's house, waiting for Joseph. He, Joseph shows up. The brothers present their tribute, their gift. Joseph asks about their father. He says he's alive and well. And Joseph sees Benjamin and asks if this was their younger brother. The text doesn't tell us if they responded or not. Just that Joseph blesses Benjamin with God's graciousness. Blesses him right there in front of everyone. Joseph's compassion is aroused within him. He's overwhelmed with emotion. right? So he leaves the room, regains his composure, washes his face, and returns to the meeting. Then, when they were getting ready to, to leave, Joseph instructs the steward to fill their sacks to the fullest. I mean, we're talking about bulging over with grain. And then put their money back in their sack, but this time put his silver goblet in Benjamin's bag. What does he do? He takes the test just a little bit further. He puts the pressure on just a little bit more. To see, okay, great. You guys went back to, to the land of Canaan. You brought my younger brother down here. That's good. I'm glad you did that. But are you willing to guarantee your lives for him? That's what Joseph was wanting to know. 
And so he puts the goblet in, jo- in, in Benjamin's bag, Just tells the uh, steward to chase after him, chases after him, he, and he basically tells them, uh, so why do you repay evil for good? Is this not the one from which my master drinks and which with, with which he regularly divines? You have done evil in how you have acted. So the, he shows up, says this to them. The brothers are like, what are you talking about, man? Have you lost your marbles? What's going, why are you chasing us down? We, we've never done anything like that. And, he, and, and, and they basically said, as you have said, uh, they, they were so certain that they hadn't done anything wrong that they verbalized their own punishment is essentially what they did. They said, whosoever bag you find this in will become your slaves. They verbalized their own punishment, okay? And so, and so the, the steward says to them, as you have said, the one with whom it is found shall be a slave to me, but the rest of you shall be exonerated. They said, go ahead, we're confident. Absolutely confident that we haven't done anything wrong. He searches everyone's sacks and he gets to Benjamin's bag. And there's the goblet. Now, if you were the brothers, what are you thinking? Oh, he's, he's a dead man, isn't he? Right? And, and what else? They, they said, our lives are at stake. We're, we become slaves if you find it here. Now what's happened is they haven't done anything wrong and now they're being accused of doing something wrong. How are you going to react in that situation? Right? What are you going to do? In their minds, God's angry with them. And they said so when they were in prison. God's angry with us. His blood is upon us. He's chastising us. He's getting us for what we've done. The whole idea of divine retribution. Right? God's getting us for this. So the steward gathers them all up, says, all right, come on with me. They get back to the city. Joseph confronts them about finding the goblet in Benjamin's sack. Judah offers the entire family of brothers into slavery, but Joseph says, nope, I only want Benjamin. Right? So he's, he's zeroing in. He's putting the pressure on. He's, he's bringing about a trial and tribulation to really, really, really reveal what's on the inside of the brothers reveal what's going on in the inside. When you get into situations, the rabbis will tell you this, the greater the man, the greater the etzahara, right? The greater you are in doing mitzvot and good deeds, gemilut chasadim, which are acts of kindness, and charity, tzedakah, the more you do these things, the more your yetzahara is going to incite against you. The more the evil inclination is going to rise up to try to get you to do things. Okay? So what is he doing? He's putting on more pressure. Great. You brought him down, but now let's see how you guys are going to deal with this situation. And so, uh, so Judah steps up to the plate. And this is in next week's portion. But we're going we're gonna to dig into this, uh, this idea of him being a guarantee. He's put in a position to put his money where his mouth is now. He told his father he was going to guarantee for him. He's going to be his surety. And now it's time to step up to the plate. Now you're in the position that you're going to have to, to do it. So Judah tells his father back in chapter 43 and verse 9. He says, I will guarantee him. It is where we derive the word arvut. It's the word arvut in Hebrew. It, it comes from the word arav in Hebrew, arav. And if you look at it, it's not Arab, it's Arab, A-R-A-B, okay? 
But this is where we der- derive the word aravut. It means to be a guarantee, guarantor, or a surety for someone else. This is what Judah was telling his father, that he would personally guarantee the safety of Benjamin. Why is this important? Up to this point, we've seen that the brothers hadn't done anything wrong uh, in their dealings with Joseph, who didn't recognize uh, who they didn't recognize, but thought he was a powerful Egyptian. They dealt with him in honesty and integrity, but they were falsely accused of doing something wrong. It's one thing to have done wrong and own up to it. It's something else entirely to not have done anything wrong and be accused of it and be falsely accused of it. Okay. Is this ringing a bell in anyone's head? That someone's accused of something they didn't do and completely suffered the punishment for something they did not do. Okay? The Hebrew word arav, the word arav, it's ayin resh bet. If you flip the letters from the ayin resh bet, it becomes the word avar. Okay? You flip the words avar, and, this, and from this word, avar is derived the word avaryan. Avaryan means a criminal. Okay? You flip the letters, an avar or an arav, you flip the letters, it becomes a criminal. Okay? You become a guarantor for someone else, you literally become the criminal on their behalf. Yeshua was counted among the criminals when he was hung on the cross, okay? This is the principle that this text is trying to tell us. This text is telling us that when you become the assurity or the guarantor for someone else, you literally become the criminal on their behalf, whether they've done something wrong or not. You are the guarantor on their behalf. This is teaching us about the Messiah, about becoming the guarantor for someone else. The reason, the reason that Abraham is called the father of the faith is because he was the very first one to display this, this, um, this trait of being a guarantor for one another. Think about, think about uh, Abraham and Lot. Lot is in Sodom and Gomorrah. It gets overrun by kings, and Lot gets carried away. What does Abraham do? Do? He takes up his 300 servants, and he goes after Lot. Did Lot deserve it? Well, no. Lot had the opportunity to hang out with Abraham, but he didn't. He saw this great place over there called Sodom. So guess what? I'm going to go down there. I'm going to hang out in this area over here. He didn't make the wisest choice in the world, but that didn't matter to Abraham. Abraham chased him all the way to where he was at, and the text literally says he went all the way to Chovah. Chovah in Hebrew means debt. Abraham took on a debt that was not his. He paid the debt for his, his nephew Lot in order to rescue him. All of these are pictures of the Messiah who took on a debt. He became the criminal on our behalf in order that we may be saved and that we may be able to walk in his ways. Okay, this is important for us to stand because there's a terrible understanding in our culture that says whatever a person does, that's his own business. That's his own stuff. I'm not going to get involved in that. I don't want to get involved in that because they might get mad at me. They might hurt my feel bads. They might, they might yell at me. They might not call me for two weeks. They might, not, you know, they might unfriend me from Facebook. But here's the thing. 
There's a saying in Hebrew. It says, Kol Yisrael aruvim zeh All of Israel are guarantors one from another. Uh, one, one to another. We are guarantors one to another. In this congregation, I'm a guarantor for you. You're a guarantor for her. If you, if, you, if, you don't, if you see your brother sinning and you don't say anything about it, then you're just as culpable about it as they are if you don't say anything about it. In the Talmud in Sotah 14a, it states that Rabbi Hama, son of Rabbi Hanina, further said what means the text, you shall walk after the Lord your God. Is it then possible for a human being to walk after the, the Shekhinah, the presence of God? For has it not been said for the Lord thy God is a devouring fire? But the meaning to walk after the attributes of the Holy One. Blessed be he, as he clothes the naked, for it is written, and the Lord God made Adam for Adam and his wife coats of skin. And he clothed them, so do you also clothe the naked. The Holy One, blessed be he, visited the sick, for it is written, and the Lord appeared unto him by the oaks of Mamre. And the Lord appeared unto him by the oaks of Mamre, so do you also visit the sick. The Holy One, blessed be he, comforts mourner, for, for mourners, for it is written, and it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed Isaac, his son, so do you also comfort mourners. The Holy One, blessed be he, buried the dead, for it is written, and he buried him in the valley, so do you also bury the dead. Remembering, remember in the beginning when I talked about the fact that God is good all the time? The Talmud is saying here that we should emulate God in all of our ways. And this, in the end, is the ultimate good that we can receive from God, is that we can become like him and do exactly as he's done. So how is this demonstrated to us? Yeshua was counted among the criminals on the cross. He did nothing wrong, and yet he had, he had become a criminal on our, on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The reason that the second temple, hovering, friends in Hebrew, the reason that the second temple was destroyed was a, is, is, a, is a concept known as sinat chinam. It was called baseless hatred. There was so much hatred going on that there was no reason for it. That the, the rabbis literally looked back and said, it was because we hated one another that this has happened. So, if the fact that the temple was destroyed because of Sinat Chinam, why will the temple be rebuilt? It'll be re rebuilt because of Ahavat Olam, because of the love for one another. I'm sorry, Ahavat Chinam, baseless love. Baseless love is what's going to bring about the redemption, okay? So this, this idea of aravut, this idea of guaranteeing for one another, is found in Galatians 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 2. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Messiah. This is it. Bear one another's burdens, love one another without condition, guarantee, be a guarantee for your brother. And what have we done? We have become like God. We are displaying and manifesting his attributes in this world so that our light so shines that people would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. One last thing, and I'll let you go. Is the word, uh, 
Arav in the Hebrew isn't mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. <laughs> Glad you asked. It most certainly is. Okay? I traced it from the Hebrew into the Greek and found it in three places. This exact word. In Greek, it's, it's literally a loan word from the Hebrew. In, in, he, in Hebrew, it's Arav. In Greek, it's Arabon. So you can, you can hear, the, hear the, the, uh, the connection there. Okay, so the first place I found it was in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22. It says, Now he who establishes us with you in Messiah and has anointed us is God, who also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a Arabon, a guarantee. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5, 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And lastly, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of, his, of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. We have Ruach HaKodesh. We have Holy Spirit. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in our life? Ezekiel 36 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So in order for us to bring about uh, uh, God's plan in this world of the redemption, in order for us to, to be partners with Hashem in the redemption process, what do we have to do? We have to become like him. We have to clothe the naked. We need to visit the sick. We need to guarantee for our brothers. We need to mesirud nefesh. We need to give up our own lives, pick up our cross daily and follow him, right? This is what's going to bring it about. And it's up to us to be the ones to do this. So how far are you willing to go to become the surety for someone else? How far are you willing to go? With that person in your life that you know is, is, is in a state that is unrectified. And yet, they, they, up until this point, they haven't heard anything that you've said to them. How far are you willing to go? I'll close with this. If you've seen the movie Fireproof, you know, it's about a, a man and a wife who, who's having difficulties and troubles in their marriage. You know, he's, he's addicted to pornography, um, and he's being ugly to his wife, and then she gets into some situations, and then he gets the 40-day love there. He, he starts going through it every day. For 40 days, he's got to do what's known as a gemilut chasadim. It's an act of kindness towards his wife to, establish, to reestablish the relationship. What is the very last thing? What is the very last thing that he does that pushes his wife back over the line and decides to go back to her drawer, open it up, put her wedding ring back on, and go meet him? He gave up the very thing that he was wanting, and he was saving money for a boat. $24,000 he had in the bank account, saving money for a boat for himself. He took all of that money, and he went and he purchased all the necessary gear for her, for her ailing mother. Bought all the beds, the medical equipment, all of this stuff. What did he do? He gave his own life. He gave everything that he had 
in order to show his wife that he cared about her so much that when she saw that this was what happened, she couldn't help but go run to him. How far are you willing to go to that person to represent Mashiach in their life, to become their guarantor, so that they might come back and, and know God, know Yeshua as the Messiah? Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. We hope you enjoyed the weekly teaching. We'd love to hear from you with a comment, a prayer request, or questions you might have. We believe the mission and message of Messianic Judaism is something the world needs now. If you enjoy these teachings, would you consider financially supporting the work of Nachamu Ami by visiting our website at www.makingmessianic.com and clicking the Give Online button in the upper right corner. Thank you again for listening.